On page 962 is the text for the sermon this morning, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It will also be on the screens for you, or screen, excuse me, singular. It'll be on the screen, but it'll also be in your lap. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say together, thanks be to God. By way of, of review, I want to uh, remind you that as we've made our way through the Beatitudes, we've seen a kind of intentional construction there. I'm not going to spend as much time on that this morning. We, are, we have come to the end of the Beatitudes, though, and Lord willing, we'll resume our series uh, on the Songs of Zion on the Psalms uh, next Sunday. The Beatitudes begin with poverty of spirit a recognition of your own need. A cultivated internal condition then follows. Poverty of spirit results in mourning over sin. Mourning over sin and a right understanding of who you are before God begins to work meekness in the heart and in practice before men. It also cultivates a deep hunger and a thirst in the soul for righteousness. This hunger and thirst for righteousness as it is filled by God presses itself, if you like, into the corners, as indeed the application of it, the, the living out of it, presses itself into the corners of our life in mercy. Blessed are the merciful. In the desire to uh, have, have one direction of life, that is God's, God, uh, the, our God-given direction in the way we uh, work and live and think and speak, blessed are the pure in heart, which unavoidably uh, shapes, not, I was going to say impacts, not only impacts, but shapes and forms how we love our neighbors. Blessed then are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And so from this hunger and thirst for righteousness springs forth a desire to be merciful, a desire for purity of heart, a desire to see shalom worked out in all the kind of spheres of life and places of influence that the Lord gives you. We come to the end of the Beatitudes then this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which verse 10 there should probably come as a surprise, I think, because look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. If I'm a peacemaker, that means my life should be peaceful and relatively trouble-free, right? I'm making peace around me. That's why this beatitude, I think, comes as a bit of a shock. Blessed are those who are persecuted, coming right after peacemakers. 
That's why last week I emphasized the sort of peace, the sort of shalom that God is bringing more and more into the world by the gospel of his son is a peace that actually declares war on the kingdoms of sin and death. Jesus came preaching peace and they killed him after all. And so uh, there are at least three things I think you should see in our text this morning, verses 10 uh, through 12. First is the cause of persecution, which is righteousness. That's verse 10. Next is the sound of persecution. That is the sound persecution makes in your ears, which is reviling. That's verse 11. And then finally, the response to persecution, which is rejoicing. That's verse 12. Let's look at this together. The cause of persecution, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first thing that Jesus says about persecution is that those who come under it are blessed. With the condition being that persecution comes because of right, for righteousness' sake. This should give shape and form to our understanding of the source of persecution. Because there's a difference between persecution and what we might call consequences for sinful behavior. Persecution doesn't mean the trouble that you might have to deal with after being obnoxious. It would be silly to say if righteousness provokes persecution, then nothing else can provoke it. In fact, if we look at 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter, uh, uh, the Apostle Peter tempers how we think about this. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And as, as a Christian, I mean, obviously we love all of God's words. I think this one should be, should be very deeply familiar to us so that when trouble comes at us, the fiery trial comes at us, which tempts us to sin, which afflicts us and which troubles us, we don't say, what? That doesn't make sense. I thought I was well behaved. Peter says when trouble comes your way, and I'm, obviously I'm paraphrasing here, you, you greet it like an old friend. Oh, I was expecting you. I thought you'd be here. Don't be surprised. Now, he doesn't say, doesn't say sort of enjoy pain or something weird like that. No, but he says, he says just don't be surprised when difficulty comes into your life as though something shocking were happening to you. He goes on. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice, it's there twice, and be glad when his glory is revealed. Think back to verse 12, right? Rejoice and, and be glad. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. I mean, the, the, connection, the connection here is unmissable. I, I, don't, it, it, I don't wonder if Peter's just remembering the Beatitudes, remembering that moment on the Sermon on the Mount and kind of summarizing. And if you like, he's, he's preaching. He's giving you some application here. Because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. In other words, because of your sin. Yet... If anyone suffers as a Christian, for righteousness' sake, you know, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so, to go back to the point I made earlier, being obnoxious might provoke trouble, sinning might provoke trouble, but not all trouble is rightly classified as persecution. Persecution will be the result of righteousness, either righteous living or righteous speaking, which is also part of righteous living. So we, we want to be careful of the other ditch, though. So, so one ditch is um, the misunderstanding, kind of potential misunderstanding would be any trouble that confronts me, I get, to, I get to categorize as persecution. The other ditch would be to assume um, 
that uh, any time we are hated or, or belittled or dismissed, the other ditch would be to blame ourselves and, oh, I, I must have sinned, right? So that's when persecution comes, the other ditch would be, oh, this must be because of my sin. That's actually not what Jesus says in Matthew 5. I'll have more to say about this later, but for now, I just want you to understand that when Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, he means persecution will come because you're following him as he commanded. So there's this fundamental reality about the Christian life, about all of life, that that the world, since Genesis 3, since the garden, is opposed to righteousness. I don't have it up on the screen, but... If you remember back in the garden, the Lord, part of his promise, part of his kindness actually is to say to, well, to mankind, I'm gonna, he actually says it to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, right? Between your seed and her seed. What does that mean? I'm gonna make the two of you enemies. The, this, this woman who was tempted and, and fell, I'm gonna make she and you enemies and her seed, her uh, offspring, enemies with you, which is a mercy and a grace, because at that point, both Adam and Eve, if, if we drew the battle lines, were still on the serpent's team, right? They had rejected God. They had gone over to the serpent's side, if you like, and God says, by his mercy and grace, I'm going to put enmity between you two, so that there's actually going to be war and fighting where there should be, rather than against me, okay? And so this fundamental reality about the Christian life, the world is opposed to righteousness, The world apart from Christ is always hardwired to call good evil, to call evil good. And so when when those tables get turned, when the world's definition of good gets confronted by Christians, righteously who call it evil and vice versa, anger and reviling is the result. Because when idols get threatened, people get mad. Mess with the golden calf and you get the horns. But notice something. Jesus says we're blessed when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake righteousness sake and in the context of the beatitudes the last time jesus used that word was back in verse six do you remember blessed are those who hunger and thirst for for righteousness okay that's a bit strange this thing we're called to hunger and thirst for is the thing that brings us trouble yes that's the nature of the pursuit of righteousness in the Christian life. We, we pursue it, we aim for it, we strive for it, even as we rest in the comfort that all of it's been purchased by Jesus. But it is going to cost us as we live it out and walk it out in this life. Some of you know this very well. And by that I mean some of you are quite distant from the Lord right now, quite distant from the Christian life itself, because you know good and well how much it would cost you. The world is offering you a sense of righteousness or, or validation or attention and your heart is pulled by it. You know that to actually follow after Jesus in the present age would cost you things that you think you really need or for your heart to have joy or for your anxiety to have rest or for you to have rest from your anxiety is what I mean. That's why Jesus says, verse 10, blessed are the persecuted for theirs is the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. He ends exactly how he begins. Do you remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who see their spiritual poverty. Why? Because the kingdoms of this world look boring compared to the kingdoms of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted while they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for all the appetites for worldly kingdoms are being crucified in them. And if you live the way Jesus calls you to live in this world, which, I mean, which by the way includes talking about Jesus, 
who he is and what he's done, then you can expect persecution to come. Of a variety of kinds, by the way. Don't limit persecution. I'll have more to say about this in a minute. But don't limit persecution to like martyrdom. There's a reason why you shouldn't. And we're almost there. But the first point is persecution has a cause and it's righteousness. Okay? Second, persecution has a sound and it sounds like reviling. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, notice the, this word for speech, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, so they're lying, on my account. Now it is both interesting and important that Jesus begins his description of persecution. So what is persecution for Jesus? He begins his description with reviling. Blessed are you when men revile you. The Greek term simply means to, to express a, a finding of fault in a way that demeans another person. The same word is used with more descriptors uh, in the parallel passage in Luke. Let's go there now. Luke chapter 6, verse 22. This is Matthew's account of the statement. Here's Luke's account of the statement. Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you. That's interesting. And revile you. There's the same word in Greek. And spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. There we see hate, exclusion, reviling, spurning, calling you the evil one. In other words, persecution sounds like hatred for the reminder, say, that, that good is good, that evil is evil. Now that's, this is very important that Jesus seems to center his attention both in our text in verse 11 and in the text in Luke on speech. Because oftentimes in our day, even among Christians, we want to define persecution really narrowly and say, you know, the only people who get to, be, get to claim to be persecuted are those who go to prison or those who get martyred. Everybody else is just whining and complaining, and they're sort of half-strength Christians, if we're honest. If you, want to, if you want to know the real Christians, then you've got to go the real most intense stories. Now, I'm not saying that our brothers and sisters in, in some places around the world don't have harder fights than we do. Many of them certainly do. What I'm saying is I don't think we need to create structures of constant shame and self-flagellation and destroy the authenticity of our own faith simply because God has been kind enough to give us religious liberty for now. This is a way of thinking that we really need to grow out of because Jesus defines persecution as reviling, hatred expressed in speech. When men hate you and say terrible stuff about you, we in fact have plenty of that in our land, no want of it. It's not decreasing at the present moment. In February 2022, so about a year ago, a Christian writer by the name of Aaron Wren, R-E-N-N, put forward a thesis that there are three distinct stages in the history of Western and American evangelicalism, and he called them the three worlds of evangelicalism. I thought this was interesting. I offer it to you as something that interest, interested me. So the three worlds of evangelicalism, if you can go to the next slide there. First, you start with positive world, which is basically evangelicalism before 1994. In that world, society was at large, uh, uh, society at large had a mostly positive view of Christianity. Now, whether you were Christian or not, you had a generally positive view of, of the idea of Christianity, whatever idea you knew of it. To be known as good, uh, to be known as a good church-going man is part of being an upstanding citizen. So, so to be, for instance, like to be a, a, an elder or a deacon at a local church, that would give you standing in the community. 
Publicly being a Christian could very well be a status enhancer. And at the same time, generally we saw that, that the moral norms prescribed by Christianity were more or less present in society and violating them could bring negative consequences. Not necessarily criminal consequences, but negative consequences. So in that world, to build a church that was strong by human standards, all you had to do was exist near human beings, okay? You could then inform them, here's where church is, okay? That was your evangelistic methodology. Here is the address of the church. And general, again, I'm speaking in generalities, generally, many would then say, oh, well, I already know I should go to church. Here's one that's right near me. I'll go to that one, okay? Between about 94 and about 2014, Wren posits that we enter into neutral world, which is society begins to take a more neutral stance toward Christianity. Christianity no longer has a privileged status, but it's not really disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian, kind of net effect zero. Neither, neither good nor bad. <coughs> uh, in that world, to build a strong church, humanly speaking, you had to make yours, your church, the most appealing so people, if they felt sort of neutral about Christianity and about church, well then if your church just had the coolest and latest music, the nicest programs, the sharpest advertising, you could expect to do pretty well. After 2014, Wren posits that we move into negative world. Society has come to have a more negative view of Christianity for a host of reasons. Being known as a Christian then is a social negative, particularly in the more elite echelons of society. Christian morality is repudiated and seen as a threat to the public order. Subscribing to Christian moral views brings negative consequences. In this world, it doesn't matter if you're near people, it doesn't matter if you have cool music, it doesn't matter how attractive your programs look. Nobody cares and plenty wish that you would just go away. And you can go ahead and waste all your energy with the marketing techniques, uh, but nobody cares because you're, you're not a positive option, you're a negative threat. I think Wren's diagnosis and his view of kind of evangelical, at least American history, is mostly correct. I would quibble with him over some things. But I also think some of the internal strife that, that we've had within the American church has been between people in our midst, in our body, some who think we still live in positive land, some who think we live in neutral land, and some who think we live in negative land. What I mean is, for instance, 20 years ago, we could talk about a seeker-sensitive movement because it still seemed like there was a large segment of our culture doing some seeking. And so some thought the best strategy, again, was to make things appealing, inviting, etc. And that's not entirely, a, that's not a bad impulse. But it, I, I would offer to you, it's just not the world we live in anymore. We live in a more hostile setting where the reviling of Christ is more and more seen as virtuous, okay? and where religious belief is not in the eyes of the broader culture, it's not that it's like in need of a fresh coat of paint and a smile, it needs to be given, uh, the, I mean, it needs to be excused from the table, let's say. And so, if, if Ren is right, if, if sort of, again, reading the signs of the times and so on, if, if he's correct in that estimation, I would suggest to you that Again, that, that, that our energies are not entirely invested in new coats of paint. There's a time for that, like new hymnals and Bibles, eh? There's a time for that. But, but the vision that guides us has to be more 
uh, I think, strengthened, if you like, undergirded by a realistic uh, analysis and understanding of what's around us. This is the reason, by the way, that we're learning to sing the Psalms. To quote Christian theologian Joe Holland, what songs will the armies of God sing to steal courage and to embolden spiritual warfare? Can you put it up, please, Jeremiah? What songs will the armies of God sing to steal courage and to embolden spiritual warfare? When we sing the Psalms, we sing the songs of war against sin, the world, and the devil. This is the reason why we're catechizing our children so that they will learn to stand with a clear word and a firm heart in the days to come. This is why we're investing a lot of our resources into Wednesday night. Uh, Wednesday nights together, being together, being in fellowship together. It's why if you look at your newsletter, you saw an invitation to the, to the Hasek's house for the folk dancing, other opportunities for fellowship. Because thicker community, if you like, is, is to put it mildly, going to do us a lot of good in, if we're in negative world. This is why you hear me repeatedly stress in preaching the necessity of repentance of sin beginning with the sins in your own household and your own family. Because in the days to come, look, the strength and steadiness of this congregation will not be measured by our financial stability, by our programs, or by our musical styles. A weak church that is ready to collapse and fold under the pressures that we live in now is not a church just with like wrong programs or wrong music. It's one where husbands hide from their wives and kids. It's one where backlogs of unconfessed sin within families build up like a dung heap in the living room. It's one where the people know how to smile and say, oh, I'm doing fine. And they haven't the first inkling of how to admit their needs or how to care for one another. That's, a, that's church that's ripe for collapse. And so, if we are to expect reviling in the present day and in the days to come, and I, I happen to think Rin's right and that we ought to, what is our response to persecution? That's a third point. Response to persecution is in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's unpack that a little bit. I would say, uh, what, I mean, I'll repeat what I said earlier, which I think this verse, I mean, the, all three of our verses this morning, but this one especially is surprising. I think it's one of the most baffling verses in the whole Bible. Rejoice in persecution. Think about it. <laughs> How am I supposed to do that? Doesn't persecution hurt? Yeah. Yeah, it does. So what is Jesus calling us to here? In short, two things, very quickly. First, I think Jesus, in his kindness, wants you to be aware of the cost of following him. Aware of the cost. Second, to balance that cost, if you like, to balance that cost with the reward of being a Christian. Let me, if we go to the verse again. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So he's told you the risk, and now he's told you the reward. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus very frequently in the Gospels, and the Apostle Paul, and Peter, by the way, uh, are not afraid to hold out to the followers of Christ unblushing promises of heavenly rewards. And we tend to think, I, mean, I think sometimes, I won't speak for everyone, but I think sometimes we, we, we can be tempted to think, well, uh, you know, good, if you're a good Christian, you don't obey Jesus because he promises rewards. 
You obey Jesus because you're supposed to. Right? I think in some sense that's an attempt to be more spiritual than Jesus. Because Jesus is not afraid to promise reward. Jesus promises reward. So we who follow him through the trials of this life. Is that supposed to get us excited? The thought of eternal, everlasting reward from the hand of Jesus himself? Of course it is. It's supposed to excite your heart so much that you reorient your whole sort of understanding and calculus of what it means to be happy. And when Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, this is so cool. The Greek words there are actually connected to the verbs of like dancing and leaping. In other words... When you face persecution in this life, when men revile you and hate you for righteousness' sake, because of the gospel, because of Jesus, walk yourself around the corner and dance a little jig. For great is your reward. So should that impact the way you live and think? Well, of course, it should make you unafraid. I mean, it should make you <clears throat> kind of level-headed and realistic. That's the word I'm looking for, realistic, uh, about facing some trouble and some hardship in this life. Probably most importantly, this text should give you the permission to say things that the wider culture might perceive as inappropriate or impolite, but that are necessary in the time in which we live. Where do I get that from? Where do I get that from that such freedom should be extended to you, Christian? Look back at the verse, please. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so... Like that, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you know why people persecuted prophets? Because the prophets said things that made people mad. The prophets did not mince words. The prophets were often downright offensive. Think of the prophet Elijah when he faces off with the false prophets of Baal, right? Cry louder, maybe your God's on the toilet. It's there. It's in the Bible. <laughs> and Ezekiel. Well, many of you have already heard how offensive and downright crude Ezekiel can be when we were going through Ezekiel. We, we, we need, I think we need to understand this and, and integrate it into our thinking because our culture, and I think if we're honest, especially Southern culture, okay, has a kind of a dogmatic doctrine of politeness. And if you fail to be polite, you have sinned. We should be careful here because I'm not offering a license to be unkind or unrestrained in your speech. Proverbs has plenty, 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 plenty to say about the necessity of restraining speech. Uh, Proverbs, I believe it's 29.11. So you, uh, uh, if you've memorized Jeremiah 29.11, throw in Proverbs 29.11 as well, that a fool gives full vent to his anger to his words, but a wise man holds them back. Right? So knowing when to exercise certain kinds of speech. Jesus says, Persecution takes the shape of reviling. I'm not inviting you to return reviling for reviling. That would actually be word for word a violation of 1 Peter 3, 9. Peter says, do not return reviling for reviling. It's the same word. I am saying that an underdeveloped part of modern evangelicalism's discipleship, and maybe if I could speak this way, an underdeveloped part of modern evangelicalism's conscience is instruction in biblical wisdom, discernment on when to hold your tongue, when to speak plainly, when to talk like a prophet. We are, I think, too often in too many places untrained and unfamiliar with this kind of wisdom. 
So much so that sometimes we tend to revile those who might speak like prophets today because we still think we live in neutral world and it's our job to make people think well of us or like us. And so, uh, and so like th- maybe that some of you just need that freedom this morning. Like if s- someone has a negative opinion of you that does not mean just in point of fact that you've failed, Jesus says to expect it. Now that does not mean that if somebody has a negative opinion of you that you have succeeded. Almost like this requires a bit of wisdom. But the gospel of Christ is reviled today. It is reviled today. And I think sometimes our temptation is, <laughs> I think sometimes there is a temptation. to say, You know, if we were better behaved, people would like us more. And maybe they would, but that's not what Jesus tells you to expect. Jesus says when you're reviled for righteousness sake, that is repeating what I have said and obeying what I've commanded, you ought to be dancing little jigs for joy. Christ called us to bear up under persecution with joy. And then he left behind, if you like, an example of what that looks like. I don't have the verse on on the screen, but you remember the author of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, right? For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, okay? Despising the shame and so on. Jesus, you see, is, is we might say the ultimate victim of persecution, hated and crucified because he brought light into darkness and scattered darkness with the light and darkness don't like that very much. And since we follow after a crucified Savior, should we think that we'll avoid suffering in this life? That would be just silly. Quite the opposite, in fact. And perhaps the greatest glory of the good news of Jesus, the good news of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign over the universe, is that all of it is ours. All of it is ours. His death became our death. His resurrection is our resurrection from the grave. His ascension is our ascension. And like when David defeated Goliath, we're we're like Israel on the sidelines. His victory is our victory, even though we never lifted a stone to accomplish it. But did you know, all that Jesus has done is ours. Did you know it also happens the other way? Do you remember in Acts chapter 9, when Saul is, is persecuting the church, He gets knocked to the ground and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, now wait a minute. Jesus, as he speaks to Saul here, is at the right hand of the Father. Saul is hunting down the Christian church and Jesus inquires, why are you persecuting me? As one theologian has aptly put it, Jesus asked the question, because whatever you do to the body, you also do to the head. What is done to the least of these is done to Jesus, if you remember that text in Matthew 25. What is done to Jesus is counted as already done to us, and what is done to us is counted by Christ as done to him. Neil, what do we call that doctrine? Imputation, Imputation and our union with Christ. Right? Neil's very favorite doctrine. Jesus is our head. We have union with him. So remember that when you are persecuted, when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, you are not being persecuted because you messed up. I'm not saying that your failures don't deserve an accounting when this happens. You know where they are. And as we sing often in Psalm 130, 
If God were to mark iniquities, none of us could stand. And you also know that you still struggle mightily with indwelling sin. Different sins for different people. And you know that Christ has called you to mortify those and to put them to death. He's already told you what to do with your sin. To confess it and to crucify it. Now, why do I say all that? We're talking about persecution. Now suddenly Brian has wandered off into uh, uh, besetting sin and forgiveness of sin. Why? Because if you don't know what Jesus has done with your sin, you will remain in a state of guilt and shame. And the guilty and ashamed man will not rejoice at persecution. He will flee from it and hide from it and make all sorts of concessions in order to remain respectable. Because if persecution were to come, he'd just blame himself. I'm not saying that being persecuted for righteousness' sake isn't sometimes mixed in with our sin. I mean, I think I'd say that's almost unavoidable. But when reviling comes, it will come with the voice of an accuser. And if you don't know, Christian, what Jesus has done with your sins, if you've instead been hiding from them and refusing to confess them, you will not, as Jesus says, rejoice in that day, rejoice in the day of persecution. You will instead be cowed into silence by your guilt and your shame. And there's a lot of that today. You do need to ask the question, if, if and when, or rather when more so than if persecution comes, you, you need to ask the question, how much, of, you know, how much of my sin is mixed in here and repent of it? Be done with it. But Jesus, at least in our text this morning, doesn't really invite you to jump to that conclusion. He just says, if it's for righteousness sake, rejoice. Start dancing the jig. Right? And so we are called to be a rejoicing people. And that rejoicing is not determined by our circumstances. Rather, it's kind of the upside-down way, right? We are then called to be a glad people. And when persecution comes, whatever form it takes, okay, whether, they, whether it's the, uh, the shedding of a good reputation or the shedding of blood, whatever form it takes, a forgiven people know how to be glad. A forgiven people know how to rejoice. And so that's why we've gathered, isn't it? To worship together to sing praises to God together, to hear His Word show us Christ, to come to the table together, to feast on the good news of our forgiveness, that our spirits might be steeled and steadied for whatever is ahead. Right? In the name of Jesus, amen.